Hello all, this is Dalvin, the co-producer of the Utopian Podcast with Jenny and Caroline. We would like to give a special thank you to Tracy Rosenlicht for helping us host today's episode. She recently just completed her Master's in Public Health, and her expertise and perspective in this conversation was indispensable. Thanks Tracy, congrats on graduating, and we can't wait to see what you do in the future. Now, on to the show. On April 22, we spoke with epidemiologist Frank Snowden about where COVID-19 fit in the spectrum of pandemics. With his background in the history of such diseases, we were able to track down interesting trends that form as a result of such outbreaks. Two months after our conversation, as a second wave becomes clearer than ever, his words have not rung truer. From civil unrest to existential uncertainties, this pandemic continues to raise questions central to the human condition. How do we get here? Were our systems built for this? And what is the way forward? We speak with Dr. Snowden to find out. Bruce Aylward, whom you is a prominent epidemiologist who is Canadian and was one of the leading figures of the attempt to eradicate polio. He led the delegation of the World Health Organization to China on its mission there. And when he returned, he was asked, what do we need to do in order to be prepared? He said, well, the most important thing is we have to change our mindset. That's the preliminary, the first step to doing anything else, because unless we actually take science seriously, unless we believe in climate science, unless we believe in medical science, unless we believe in Darwinian evolution, we aren't going to be able to solve any of these problems. My name is Jenny Dadari. And I'm Caroline Klowinowski. And this is The Utopian. Set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. So I want to ask you, since you've been studying the history of epidemics and pandemics, are there any striking connections between epidemics and specific political movements that tend to arise? And then tying that to the more personal and philosophical, how do pandemics or epidemics tend to change our perception of the self on a collective scale? Right. Uh, well, the first thing point I probably make is that my way of thinking of epidemic diseases is that they are like a looking glass in which a society at a particular time uh, sees itself reflected. And that also, I would say, that each epidemic disease is different from every other. Uh, they are not interchangeable causes of death. They have, if you like, uh, particular ways of affecting a society, and a lot depends on the disease itself and on how it intersects with the particular context. So I would be uh, reluctant simply to say that epidemics all have a particular impact because that isn't the case. Um, there's how it's transmitted matters, what the symptoms are like, what the case fatality rate is, how many people, how long it lasts, if it comes in waves or just one quick visitation, uh, whether it strikes people down in public like bubonic plague and cholera or, uh, or not. So there's so many different um, possibilities uh, with regard to epidemic disease, but they do, there are some features that I think I would say that as a category, epidemic diseases uh, have that are distinct, let us say, from uh, chronic diseases or occupational diseases or genetic diseases, um, which is to say that they really do confront communities with uh, enormous psychic insecurities. That is to say, they raise immediately the fear of death and our mortality. 
Uh, they uh, raised questions about what sort of ethical commitments we have. Do we really care about the most uh, vulnerable in our communities or don't we? Uh, do we have what relationship do we have of trust or lack thereof with authority, whether that be religious or the political authorities? of a particular community, uh, they deeply can affect the economy. And so they raise insecurities about the future, the future of my dependents and family, uh, whether I'll be unemployed forever, uh, whether I'll be able to eat next week uh, as I am at the moment. So with all of those anxieties lurking in the background, it's probably not surprising that they have served as major triggers for all kinds of events, riots, um, regime change, uh, religious uh, revivalism, uh, all sorts of issues of that kind. Uh, and this has been occurring, as far as we know, from uh, the first historically recorded pandemic, which was more epidemic, I guess we would say, the plague of Athens, forward. So uh, it seems as though there are certain themes that are common. I think it's very common that epidemic diseases cause frightened people, uh, especially with an unknown disease, to look for uh, someone to blame. People want an explanation for an unexpected and terrible event, and that expectation uh, explanation, I suppose, for uh, there are people of various degrees of mental energy and or opposing that laziness. So a simple explanation that says it's the fault of person X or type of person Y is deeply satisfying and reassuring to certain people. And so we see witch hunts, uh, xenophobia, uh, and this holds from the time of the plague of Athens and uh, Pericles was suddenly deserted by his following, Thucydides tells us, um, who held him responsible uh, for what was happening. And we see it in the determination of certain political leaders to uh, call this the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus or other political leaders in Europe to say it's the fault of immigration. Uh, so there are lots, and we know about the history of the gay plague at the time of HIV AIDS when it was first not well known, and there was this idea that you could blame gay people for what actually, with all human beings, these diseases are just a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so thinking of it that way conflicts entirely with public health and with science, but it does offer an explanation and it's, a, I guess, uh, a way of people dealing with anxiety, fear, insecurity of all sorts of the types that we were talking about. So I guess I would say there are these themes that these terrible events do have with a kind of recurrence Though what the outcome will be of an epidemic, um, you can't know in advance. It's, it's not a sort of paint-by-numbers event. It really uh, depends on the context and the ideas in people's heads. I mean, it matters a great deal if you attribute the outbreak to the germ theory of disease or if you think it's God's punishment or it's by uh, act of bioterrorism. Uh, those are very different ways of responding and they produce different reactions. So uh, it's very dicey to try to imagine that we know in advance that a disease is coming, this will be its effect. I don't think that's really possible. So my question is more along the lines of like socioeconomic status and how that impacts you know, the most vulnerable populations. Um, so the coronavirus is spreading um, a dangerous strain of inequality. Better off Americans are being able to work from home, from their laptops comfortably, whereas lower class individuals are more or less forced to go to their jobs. A lot of times, like grocery workers are, you know, essential workers. How have we seen over time and in history uh, something similar to that, where the lowest class individuals are being put at the highest risk? 
whereas the highest class individuals are um, able to stay home or, you know, have some sort of uh, safety within their space. Right. Uh, the odd thing about uh, epidemic diseases, it seems to me, is that uh, it's we ourselves and the societies that we have created that provide the channels that microbes exploit to reach us. So in a sense, uh, those microbes are very different for different sorts of societies. And I would say, as an example, that uh, the Asiatic cholera is a disease of industrialization and its takeoff, and it reflects the sanitary standards associated with that, the press of people into urbanization, and uh, the lack of sewer systems, uh, clean drinking water, and lots of urban filth overcrowding. And that's uh, one type of disease that in the industrial world, uh, cities like New York City or Rome, where I am at the moment, um, Los Angeles, Paris, are no longer vulnerable to that kind of affliction. In other words, we, an industrialized society, doesn't create the opportunities for a microbe of that kind to exploit and to reach and spread in our midst. On the other hand, we, by creating a different social economics, environmental as well, uh, because that's a big component, globalization is a different era. And I would say that this is the first major epidemic disease of the globalized era. And its features about globalization that really create the possibility, and those have to do with our enormous number as we're approaching the point of um, 8 billion people on the planet. I don't know, one day we may have standing room only sort of thing. Uh, it's also a time when uh, we have a myth in our minds that it's possible always to have infinite growth, uh, even though the resources of the planet are limited. It means also that we are encroaching in a rapacious and relentless manner onto animal habitat. And that brings people into uh, relationships with animals, which are reservoirs of lots and lots of different viruses, for example. And that seems to be a part of globalization. And then we have these huge cities that are teeming and densely inhabited, and we link them by air travel so that a microbe that suddenly emerges in Jakarta, I pick that at random, is with us in Rome and Los Angeles uh, by nightfall. And so we are vulnerable now to a different kind of disease, not to a disease transmitted by the oral fecal route, but rather to a disease that's transmitted through the air, that we are deeply vulnerable to that kind of disease because not uh, it's not a sort of feature of human nature or of nature itself. It's of the interaction between the two. At this stage of our development, we have created the conditions that allow that sort of disease to prosper. So I would see that uh, diseases are enormously different in uh, how they are either fit or uh, not for particular kinds of society. And in terms of poverty, I think that diseases are extraordinarily variable. Some seem to be relatively, uh, to be slightly facetious, to say equal opportunity afflictions that can strike anybody. Other diseases are deeply inflected with class and ethnicity. Um, and uh, ethnicity also is a shorthand way for talking about economic and social disadvantage. So what I would say about different diseases, probably the one I can think of immediately that is most like an equal opportunity affliction would be the Spanish influenza. It traveled by air 
and uh, it seems to have uh, really ravaged everyone. All you had to do was breathe in and out to be vulnerable. And so it was not, I would not say that it was a disease of poverty, though certainly it killed the poor, but it seems to have killed everyone. And I think I would say going back further in time, the bubonic plague uh, was also uh, probably uh, a disease that people even experienced it as uh, a disease that afflicted everyone because you have Bruegel's paintings, for example, and the Grim Reaper is coming and sweeping away everyone, kings, priests, workers, peasants, um, men, women, children, infants, etc. And there are many, many artists who have depictions of that kind. So this is different from Asiatic cholera, which was overwhelmingly a disease of people who lived in overcrowded conditions with um, their food and water contaminated by uh, human waste. And in fact, it created social tensions, as you can imagine, that people in poor areas would notice that uh, people from the upper classes, priests, doctors, would be municipal authorities, could be in their midst. And yet, they never seem to come down with the disease. That seems unnatural. And so people think that maybe that reads the idea that maybe this is uh, uh, a crime rather than a natural event, an attempt, as was you know said again and again, to rid a country of the poor, uh, to solve its social problems. And that uh, this seeming disease was uh, in fact something else. So that's a, a common temptation. When we turn to coronavirus, I think it's very easy to be misled uh, because it is to some extent a hybrid. We know that it afflicts uh, people at the top of the social spectrum. Um, the Prince of Monaco, Prince Charles, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, uh, Tom Hanks and his wife, um, you know, there, uh, there's no shortage of prosperous, well-connected, uh, well-housed and well-fed people who have contracted this disease. And in the beginning, it looked as though uh, there were people who were, you know, skiers on vacation uh, seemed to have um, the disease disproportionately. But as the more it goes on, it has become quite clear that although it does claim its victims at every social stratum of society, that disproportionately it is across the globe targeting and sickening and killing uh, the disadvantaged. And that's true in numerous ways within a particular society. It clearly is doing that. Uh, take the case of the United States and um, it's rampaging uh, and direct correlation with people's zip codes. That is to say, uh, the uh, impoverished zip codes, uh, which also happen to be in our country, uh, inhabited by, um, well, although there aren't so many in absolute numbers, in terms of percentages afflicted, Native Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans uh, and African Americans are overwhelmingly and disproportionately affected. In Manhattan, this was enormously clear that I think uh, Hispanic, Spanish Americans were twice, had twice the number of cases per population as uh, white uh, middle class uh, zip codes in New York. And then if you add uh, things such as uh, concentrations of disadvantaged people in uh, the prison systems of the world. Um, they have been uh, devastated uh, by this particular epidemic. So yes, I do believe that the coronavirus in the terms of individual countries is disproportionately a disease of the disadvantaged. And then if we turn on a worldwide spectrum, the case becomes, I think, uh, I say I think because take into account the fact that now 
on the 22nd of April, 2020, we've only had any human experience of this disease that's known since December. And so, in fact, what isn't known about the disease far outweighs what is known. Uh, so many questions about it uh, have yet to be answered. You know, we don't know if it's seasonal uh, to some degree. We don't know if it's going to come in waves. We don't know in when lockdown is lifted, if it will reemerge and flare up. We don't know how much it's going to devastate resource poor countries, but uh, it clearly seems to be uh, doing that. And that makes perfect sense because what are we told are the ways that people and communities can protect themselves. Uh, we're told we can protect ourselves by social distancing. We can protect ourselves by washing our hands. Uh, we can protect ourselves by notifying the health system early on. Uh, we know that those uh, pieces of advice don't really mean anything at all if you're living in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro where you have 10 people in a tiny room, what kind of uh, uh, social distancing is possible there and where you don't have a secure supply of water and um, soap and changes of clothing, for example, are very hard to come by. And then it's also true that it's a kind of pile on where more and more things uh, uh, happen. People who are undernourished are more vulnerable. Uh, in general to diseases. The mechanisms with coronavirus, I stress, have not been established, but in general, that's a feature of diseases as a class, and I don't expect, at least infectious diseases as a class, and I expect that will be true in this case. And I just read the morning newspaper and the uh, UN is worrying that there are so many millions of people uh, beginning to be afflicted with this disease who are already hungry. And as it begins to devastate agriculture, that is the people who produce food, that uh, as many as, I read the horrible statistic from the UN, as 260 million people worldwide uh, may be at severe risk of starvation. So uh, this is really uh, a tragedy uh, that could be unfolding and that poverty has a huge role in that. And if you wanted, we could go into why poverty is an important uh, uh, driver of this pandemic, but I'll leave that to you. No, of course, let's get into um, why poverty is uh, in a driver of this pandemic. Truly, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, I would say it has to do with a whole series of issues. Uh, one of them is access to medical care. And while well, in the United States, uh, there are 30 million people and more who uh, aren't actually covered by insurance. And what does that mean? That means that scientific public health depends on accurate, uh, reliable, and uh, rapid information. If people are not covered by don't have access to care, that means that those people can fall sick and for long periods of time without being detected by public health authorities. They don't report. They're afraid of the expense if they call a doctor or in poor countries in the world, there isn't a doctor. Um, and that means that the sentinels aren't posted, so you can't uh, practice contact tracing, quarantine, and isolation if you don't know the disease is there. And if the person and the people uh, who are suffering from the disease are beyond the reach of the medical profession, then you have a calamity that's happening without the state being aware. So that's one reason that poverty drives these diseases. Another is that people who are poor uh, tend to live in the worst conditions of particulate matter in the air. 
and one sees this in a whole, and that is a driver of a pulmonary viral disease to lead to its having, it makes people vulnerable and have uh, much worse outcomes as a result. It also uh, is a disease that thrives in the bodies of people who have pre-existing conditions uh, that make them more vulnerable, and those two are not uh, equably distributed in the population. That is, the poor who are more obese and um, who also have suffer uh, from less good nu nutrition, who have more diabetes, who are likely to have untreated cardiovascular issues. Uh, all of those make uh, the impoverished uh, much more uh, likely to contract the disease, as do simple things that we have mentioned, housing conditions, density of population within a given place uh, is an enormous factor in driving uh, this disease forward. And then, of course, with prisons, the confinement, the lack of medical care, there are in so many conditions, the fact that jails are, in fact, don't practice social distancing. They're like an emergency room uh, in the hospital system. Con people are constantly coming in and out and being discharged. And so their jails provide a danger to their inmates and also to communities outside uh, as the disease ebbs and flows in and out. So all of those are reasons that make it entirely logical that poor people would suffer much more. And as I say, in the United States, that means ethnic minorities. And in many places, it also means, and not only the United States, immigrant communities. If you look, for example, at Singapore, it is the migrant workers in Singapore who are, that is to say, the Singaporean authorities got uh, a very good reputation for having dealt with the disease early on in a scientific manner, but they ignored uh, temporary workers who do so many of the manual jobs in Singapore, who live in barracks that are known for bad hygienic, economic, and housing conditions, and they're overcrowded. And that's where in Singapore and that city-state that this is uh, Overwhelmingly, it's a disease of that sector of the population. And so this is a disease that runs along the lines of disadvantage, poverty, neglect, overcrowding, and pre-existing conditions, all of which overlap and make it a, an awful affliction. Um, I wanted to go back to what you said earlier about the relationship between human civilization and nature now. Um, Ebola was contracted from bats, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, coronavirus, SARS, and with 8 million people in the world, and this number is like going to be growing, we're constantly going to be encroaching these lines and like crossing into nature. And I was wondering if we've seen this happen before in other epidemics where humans are crossing or, you know, the line between nature and say, like a typical village, you know, we're just growing constantly. And um, Yes, this is um, a real and major issue that it's not by chance, as you say, that as we become more numerous and as economic activities become all more uh, devouring of our planet, that it uh, destroys biodiversity. I mean, this is the age of the great extinction. And uh, it also destroys, well, as part of that process, animal habitat. So a zoonotic spillover, that is the movement of uh, microbes from animal populations to humans, is uh, ever more frequent and common. And this is the story, after all, of, well, by definition of avian flu um, from wild fowl, it's the story of MERS. Uh, the story of SARS, uh, the story of Ebola, uh, the story of coronavirus. And I'd say, uh, you know, you'd have to be sleep, asleep not to see a pattern um, emerging uh, even just from that list. 
So uh, yes, zoonotic spillover is an ever-increasing problem, and that is going to continue, as you say, um, but it doesn't mean that it has to continue in the way that it is. And in particular, I'm thinking of deforestation, and that is one of the drivers of uh, these diseases. We've mentioned bats, and bats, um, people now, if there's a trade in you know, wild animals in uh, in China and in large parts of Africa as well, that's driven by economic factors, by traditional uh, medicinal theories that uh, fresh meat from the wild is protects you against, uh, makes you healthier, um, and also that it's something of a, uh, a status symbol because it costs more. And so to be able to serve that um, at home to people is, you know, reflects your your standing in the community, it's thought. So there are lots of drivers of it. And uh, so people invade animal habitat. And with bats, they also, the bats live in the canopy of forests. And once you cut down the canopy, loggers, miners, the palm oil industry, you know, those are, are, are big, heavily involved in this. It clearly uh, does cause the bats to move elsewhere. That's the story of Ebola, or child playing uh, in the hollow of a tree near his home. The bats had occupied that tree because they had no longer could roost in the canopy of the nearby of the forest, and so they came to a tree near uh, where people are living. Uh, a child played in the hollow of it, where thousands of bats were roosting, and inhaled uh, their viruses. And then uh, it turns out that uh, that child infected all of his family. And this is the way that the disease spread. Uh, case one, uh, the index case, then all the other cases uh, in West Africa during the Ebola epidemic were descendants of this original case. So uh, it wasn't as though this was happening every five minutes or there was a lot of there was a lot of mythology in the West that it was the really strange culinary habits of Africans and uh, this mysterious from the, the, uh, the jungle. My belief is that another thing needs to be said, which is that we were talking about the, uh, I think it's unfortunate to imagine what has been the story of recent decades, which is that public health and environmental concerns run on parallel tracks, uh, but don't converge therefore, whereas in fact, they're entirely interlocking and what's happening to our planet is also destroying our health. And that's true in these pandemics. You can see it if you think of, uh, take something like urban smog, which is a driver of uh, pulmonary diseases. That's an environmental issue, but it's also a major issue of uh, infectious diseases uh, of the lungs in particular. So I think that if we're to deal with this successfully, we have to see that climate change environmentalism and scientific public defense of public health are a part of an interlocking package uh, that part of our health requirement is to have a green economy. And that's also the only solution for a um, non-destructive relationship with the planet and with the other species that occupy it. I think you do a really phenomenal job of describing the very interdisciplinary nature of this crisis. Like you were saying, it's not just an environmental issue or a public health issue, it's an economic issue. And, you know, we need to kind of target it from all industries to be able to confront it in the right way. And I, I wanna connect this idea that we're starting to talk about to your metaphor of the mirror, how we're for the first time looking at ourselves in a mirror and we're forced to ask ourselves questions like, are our institutions failing us? Are we failing our societies? And taking these ideas forward, I mean, what does it look like? How do we even begin to tackle such a interconnected issue when it seems like from every industry, what we've been doing so far is wrong? 
Um, that's a, a good and troubling point that you raise. And so I see that you share my worries. I would say that, uh, yes, it is um, true that industry is not doing a, a wonderful job of protecting the planet. And uh, I would say that the U.S. government, by withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accords, is um, you know doing something terrible to the environment. But let's also note that there are some good signs that there are industries that are taking this on board. And uh, examples of that are, um, uh, now that I don't want to say industries, because that means that a whole industry has changed its spots. Uh, and that's not the case, I believe. Uh, but there are companies, major companies, and there are, for example, Unilever, Westrock, um, are, uh, and indeed, oddly enough, Goldman Sachs are adopting the idea that they have to integrate sustainability and not just practice into how they conduct their business and that they have to uh, not, it seems to me that we lived by an economic, economics theory that had the belief that all you had to look at was the bottom line and that was actually a lie because the costs were exported and the company didn't face them. Costs to the environment, for example, costs to the community in which the industry was located. All of those are real costs, but they don't factor into the assessment of costs that are presented to the, the stockholders, the shareholders. And it's what hasn't traditionally been part of the planning of the company as it does its business. Um, so now a company like Unilever is actually trying to take account of the external damage that it's doing to the environment as part of the cost of doing business and that it needs to reduce that just as it does other costs, that it needs to be accountable to its workforce and to the communities in which it does business and to its consumers. Uh, and this is a, a different way of doing business and it makes an enormous amount of uh, sense. And uh, there are also important CEOs of companies who now say publicly even that it's essential to have a green economy that if we aren't going to have one, we aren't going to survive as uh, a civilization and perhaps even as a species. So the problem there and the World Wildlife Fund would clearly um, demonstrate this, that is good and important, but we actually need something more, which is not just a company by company progress, but whole industries and then a whole of society approach. And so we need whole society approaches to the problem and that the, a result at the moment is that we're actually losing this battle against climate change. And I would say we're also uh, losing the battle or certainly not doing very well when it comes to dealing with pandemic diseases. So uh, I find both of those, your comments, very apt and it is important to construct a new model a new way of doing business. And I think uh, when Bruce Aylward, whom you was, is a prominent epidemiologist who is Canadian and was one of the leading figures of the attempt to eradicate polio, he led the delegation of the World Health Organization to China on its mission there. And when he returned, he was asked, what do we need to do in order to be prepared? He said, well, the most important thing is we have to change our mindset. That's the preliminary, the first step to doing anything else, because unless we actually take science seriously, unless we believe in climate science, unless we believe in medical science, unless we believe in Darwinian evolution, we aren't going to be able to solve any of these problems. And it also means that we can no longer adopt 
the old economic model, or should I say also the neoliberal model, and that involves things such as thinking of health as uh, a marketable commodity rather than a human right. And uh, the thing is, in the, it's an illusion, I would say a false ideology to think you can do that because we are so interconnected. It's not only that it's inhumane to exclude people uh, from health access to quality health care, it's also in the long run self-defeating because that exclusion will cause diseases to be spread around the world. That's part of the story of the coronavirus. And uh, the coronavirus isn't going anywhere anytime soon, but it's even if we do succeed in containing it entirely, there will be other challenges from other diseases that will be equally serious, sometimes more so, maybe less so, but this is not a challenge. We live in a world of infinite numbers of microbes uh, and viruses in particular uh, mutate and evolve at such an extraordinary rate that the being challenged in our world by those microbes is simply an inevitability. Yeah, and I, I think what you're alluding to is one of the reasons we decided to form this podcast. You know, it's kind of like that Albert Einstein quote, insanity is trying the same things and expecting different results. And that's kind of what we've been doing. So, you know, we're here because we want to break out of that insanity and really press experts to think about how we can solve problems. So, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was that... Um, this neoliberal model that has become the forefront of our societal governance is failing us. And going from that idea, and you know, you can connect it to um, public health or environment, um, whatever you're most knowledgeable about, but what's the way forward? And you know, how can we as individuals um, make the way forward become our reality? And how can we press our policymakers to do the same? Uh, that's a, a powerful question, and uh, I don't have a sort of uh, easy, quick answer uh, that's going to make us all feel optimistic about the future. I think dealing with these problems is going to be enormously difficult, and I don't want to make a prediction about whether we're actually going to embrace them in the way that's necessary, indeed urgent with regard to climate change and public health. I think that uh, it needs to be done rather sooner rather than later. I, I guess I subscribe to a philosophical model that I remember, which is to have, if you like, pessimism of the intellect, but always maintaining optimism of the will. I feel that now uh, the only way that things are going to have a chance and we don't need to place odds. That's uh, rather depressing, I think, in the present climate. Uh, the point is, if we are going to have any chance to right these conditions, a first and essential step is actually to be done right now, which is to make awareness of this something that spreads around the world. Because it seems to me that this is a moment when people are actually hungry for an understanding of how this could have happened. People want to know, what is this that has hit us? How did it get here? What can we do about it? And we can't wait until after it's finished and then have a post-mortem. Uh, by then, uh, people will, there's a sort of uh, amnesia that begins to take over. But it seems at this moment, this disease demonstrates, at least to my satisfaction, uh, beyond uh, argument that we absolutely have to have as part of our survival kit in the world, universal access to medical care. Great points. Um, I just want to touch upon something that you keep bringing up, which is health insurance and uh, just coverage in America and how um, there's millions of people that can't get coverage because they either don't fall into the guidelines of Medicaid 
or Medicare, or they recently lost a job, or they're working part-time with multiple part-time jobs and they can't afford to pay out of pocket for a self-funded plan. Um, health insurance started in the 1850s um, as a non-for-profit with Blue Cross Blue Shields. Um, over time, it's turned into a for-profit business. Um, where do you see healthcare going in the future, just based on what we're going through now? What are your thoughts on this? And how can we relate it to other countries and how they have handled the coronavirus on their ends? I think I would perhaps compare the the Italian system that I know well with the American system and say that the Italian system is actually did, is doing and has done uh, much better than the American one. And that's despite the fact that it was heavily tested um, during uh, this pandemic, that uh, the death rate was quite high and everyone said that Italy was for a while the epicenter of um, the world disease, which actually uh, there, there's a lot to be said that that's uh, deceptive thinking about it in that way. I mean, the kinds of deceptions. One reason uh, that the Italians were dying in disproportionate numbers was that the population is so old, their health care system has actually increased longevity. If you moved from the United States to Italy, you would live a number of years longer on average, which is extraordinary since the U.S. pays multiple times to deliver a lesser result. And 23% of the Italian population is over 65. And so I don't know the figures for the states as a whole. An outlier, of course, is Alaska. Um, and I just happen to remember that Alaska has a population over 65 of 9.1%. Now, that's not representative of the states as a whole, and I don't want to say it is, but it does provide an illustration. And if I'm not mistaken, it's somewhere in the low teens, um, the population for the U.S. as a whole. So, uh, in any case, there is that factor involved. Uh, the point, though, is that when the coronavirus appeared, uh, there was a single voice that spoke for Italian public health. And as a result, uh, compliance was very, very general. And one reason, uh, let me illustrate, the newspaper in Rome, which is called Il Messaggero, The Messenger, uh, wrote an article which said that uh, this is the first time in 3,000 years of Italian history that the citizens of Rome have ever been obedient. Um, the reason I think that is true is that uh, they had a situation where everyone was familiar with the healthcare system and had access to it, uh, had confidence in it, uh, that uh, there was only there was one policy that existed for the whole of the nation, and it was explained. It was democratically elected officials who put it in place, and it was known they would be held accountable. That the measures had a sunset clause that they expire; they're not permanent, uh, and that at the same time uh, it was known exactly what they were. Uh, and they were the same everywhere. And so there was enormous, the messaging is important and the education of the population is important. And the Italian government spoke with one voice. Uh, placards went up everywhere explaining what social distancing meant and what uh, was necessary. Vans went through neighborhoods uh, with loudspeakers uh, helping to convey the message. Uh, the television every night, there were uh, hours went into explaining it all. Uh, so there was an enormous effort uh, that reached everyone, and people had a real sense that we're all in this together. I even experienced this myself, waiting in line and outside of supermarkets, and you hear people having conversations. Oh, I wonder if this was what it was like in the 
uh, Second World War and during the Blitz in London. You know, we're all in this and it uh, doesn't matter who we are. We're all experiencing the same thing. And we only get through it by pulling together and realizing that this is a, uh, affects the whole of our society. And contrast that uh, with the experience of the United States. where you have um, President Trump and Vice President Pence saying one thing, uh, and then you have uh, Anthony Fauci, who's advising them, saying a different thing. Uh, then you have 50 governors, uh, and they all are contradicting each other and contradicting what the president is saying. And then you have municipalities, which have a huge role in health. Uh, and then you have school boards about making independent decisions about closing schools and so on. So what you have is, um, I guess, a total cacophony, as if you were supposed to play uh, a symphony, but you gave uh, each, uh, uh, each player uh, and completely different um, uh, music to play, and each went off on its own. And it was rather like that with the horrible result that we see, and people not feeling that compliance is a, is a good thing, and questioning it, and um, uh, violating it in really large numbers. And I think that's not uh, because Americans are bad, it's because uh, the way in which this has been presented has not been convincing to the public that people know what they're doing and there's a large lack of trust in authority as a result and people are genuinely confused and that's just part of my my sense that i'm saying to you i really think my experience one reason i'm doing this sort of conversation that we're having is i feel um, a sense that if i've spent so many years studying this what kind of person would I be if I weren't willing to put what I've been thinking and learning sort of into the mix, uh, into the pot uh, to think about and discuss, and hopefully it could be useful uh, somewhere at some time as part of the conversation. So I feel that that's really what I'm doing and what I've discovered through I guess I've by now I've done something 50 interviews at this point. Uh, and so I feel that uh, what seems to be the way the feedback I get is that uh, it is worth doing because uh, people are hungry to understand. Um, and that for that reason, I think there's a great opportunity. Uh, it really is a teaching moment uh, for those who think about these issues actually to or to um, make their views known, um, to lobby for uh, what needs to be done, to make people aware that there are alternatives, that this, I guess I think of pandemic diseases also as being a little bit like uh, morality drama, uh, a moral drama being acted out uh, in front of us, and we're the protagonists. Uh, how are we going to behave in this? What are we going to do? Are we going to uh, be uh, rational and use, or are we going to react in an entirely emotional, self-interested, short-term way? Are we going to uh, pay, listen and devising our future to what science is teaching, or are we going to uh, uh, reject evolution and reject climate science and reject uh, uh, rational public health. Those seem to me, uh, are we going to believe in internationalism? It seems to me that's another crucial part of this uh, because you can't, and this is another way that environmentalism and public health are related. You can't have an environmental strategy that is only bounded by national borders because what's happening to the planet is all of our species. And what happens, uh, happens to all of us. We all live on just this one planet. Uh, and if it is destroyed, uh, that is going to be something that no single nation can prevent. Um, I believe that public health uh, is the same. And that uh, if you're going to have uh, 
a sound public health, you need internationalism. And so I'm very upset with the idea that the EU, uh, the European Union, could break up over its response because we need not less internationalism, we need more of it. And the EU can have an enormously positive role uh, with a collective policy. They didn't this time with uh, diverting resources and directing them to the places where they're needed most. And then at the global level, the World Health Organization, I think it was tragic to think of uh, defunding the World Health Organization just when we need them most. And that you need to have an organization that can present guidelines to health ministries around the world in an informed uh, way that can send missions to observe, to advise, that can help direct resources where they're needed, that can channel them, uh, all these sorts of things, um, and can, between, in the period between epidemics, can uh, begin to have uh, preparedness and uh, uh, a really medical response teams and to post the sentinels uh, through health and environmental surveillance. So those seem to me really essential features of our survival kit. And so throwing it out and saying that, well, uh, I guess I'll reveal my views. I would say that one of the really sad things that could occur is if future generations look back and regard our era, uh, its best um, metaphor is a Trumpian wall, um, where we try to divide the world into little pieces, um, which I think is uh, going to do that, I believe. It's dishonest because it directs resources at the wrong problem. Uh, and so we waste resources rather than spending them. It's not immigrants who brought uh, this catastrophe to us. Uh, it's something else. It's the way we conduct our normal business. Uh, and it's um, getting out of it will require international collaboration rather than walls and borders. And the one thing, if the you can say that there is an analogy here that uh, the environmental crisis is global. Uh, you can't, that I think is self-evident. I don't need to make that argument, but I would say it's the same thing with microbes. Microbes don't respect national borders. Um, and uh, above all, uh, um, and, uh, pulmonary viruses uh, clearly, clearly don't. And so you really do need an international global response, and we need to start thinking in those terms. And um, climate change also disproportionately affects uh, disadvantaged people the same way pulmonary diseases do. Uh, we've seen multiple examples around the world where uh, people who are economically disadvantaged are more likely to get sick because of uh, these economic policies that are currently being enacted. And you've also mentioned before that changing the mindset from science to social healthcare policy to even environmental policy is key to solving like the coronavirus issue and future issues to come. Um, but right now there's a resistance inside the White House to even changing the mindset to sort of deal with what we have, the issues that we have on hand right now. Uh, meaning the coronavirus or even immigration and <laughs> a bunch of other things. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, how can we understand the pandemic and what it's bringing if even our government is resisting? And whether we've seen this before in history, um, have other governments tried to like, or regimes just sort of resisted this? Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, so isn't that word unprecedented overworked uh, in the coverage of coronavirus? I, uh, most of what's happening is not entirely without historical roots and precedents. So uh, I would agree with you in that way. And it's not the first time uh, that governments have. Uh, well, first, I want to be sure that I think I concentrate on uh, Trump in my comments. I have done that uh, partly because 
I think that, um, well, because uh, I'm talking, we're talking together, and that's a, a great concern of ours. Uh, but in addition, it's true that the United States is the last remaining superpower, and its weight in the economy and uh, in supporting the United Nations and the World Health Organization is absolutely critical. Uh, the CDC is the gold standard for an emergency response organization, and its contribution to the destruction of the planet um, through uh, greenhouse gases, uh, you know, all of that uh, dependence on carbon fuels and so on is also huge. So it's important. We can't not deal with the United States. Um, but it is worth also noting that this isn't uh, just a, a U.S. issue. It uh, really is lots of other countries. And on the public health front, uh, Boris Johnson hasn't done brilliantly, uh, nor has Bolsonaro um, in Brazil. Uh, there are lots of uh, governments that have uh, decided to put their uh, to adopt the ostrich strategy of putting your head in the sand and denying that this is happening. Um, you know, to say, oh, it's just a cold or it's uh, no worse than seasonal flu and it will go um, away, you know, very quickly and we can all get back to work on the 1st of May and everything will be fine. Uh, there are all these, uh, all of those statements have in common that they have no empirical data uh, uh, to uh, actually demonstrate the proposition at all. And all, in fact, it's the other way around. It's hard to make uh, you know, any reasonable interpretation of what we know so far about this disease uh, would be at odds with all of those propositions. Now, this is, um, oh dear, uh, where to start even, that it's not a uh, the first time in history that governments have, um, you can just think recently about um, uh, Ebola, um, I meant to say, uh, SARS. Uh, we know the history of China and dealing with SARS uh, has not uh, been uh, transparent, shall we say, and has been uh, one of prevarication uh, manipulation of the statistics, um, all those sorts of things uh, went on uh, in dealing with SARS. We know that uh, that was fairly common uh, in uh, dealing with uh, Asiatic cholera, uh, that governments also uh, pretended it wasn't there. Uh, there was actually a secret epidemic in 1911 that reached um, Italy and that both Italy and the United States uh, collaborated in denying that it existed and uh, manipulating the statistics internationally and violating uh, the uh, international health agreement, which made Asiatic cholera a reportable um, disease and thereby putting the health of other countries at risk um, in the course of this uh, epidemic disease. Uh, and uh, many governments and municipalities have wanted not to disturb trade uh, with the quarantines that would be required by the admission of the presence of this disease. And so, yes, it has a, there's a long history of and not a, a glorious one, and the results don't speak well for applying that strategy. Uh, it doesn't actually really work very well uh, in terms of welfare and devastation of economies. So, yes, I would say um, it's not unprecedented, uh, and the results show its danger. I wanted to go back to that phrase that you used earlier about pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. I'm really fascinated by that. It's a beautiful statement. What exactly does that mean for the way that we should live our lives going forward? Oh, uh, it means that if you were to ask me uh, that, well, they're very soon, let us say, in the United States. Uh, be a healthcare for all system established, uh, let's say, if 
coronavirus goes uh, is mastered, let's say, by say by a vaccine uh, in a year and a half, is there much likelihood that we'll have uh, that? Would I uh, bet the farm on that's happening? And I would have to tell you that having knowing um, in who the candidates are uh, in our next election, uh, neither of whom regards that as a priority, but quite the opposite. And so I don't actually believe that it's my intellect tells me that's not likely to happen right away. Uh, but I believe it's such a priority issue that it's essential to start now to make people aware of what's being sacrificed, what the real cost of not having that, that this is part of what people have suffered now and what they'll suffer again uh, if it's not done, and uh, to demystify this idea, oh, it costs $3 trillion, that's impossible. Uh, they magicked $2 trillion to stimulate the economy overnight, uh, virtually. Uh, so I don't regard the $3 trillion as actually, well, first, it's a lie because it's the case that it would be pay for itself over time. The setting up of an alternative system would be expensive, but then you would begin to make savings every year after that because the kind of health care we deliver in the United States costs two or three times uh, what it costs anywhere else in the world to deliver a better package. I mean, this is the most expensive way uh, of trying to preserve a population's health that you can imagine. Uh, and it means that not only is the problem one of confronting coronavirus, but uh, cancer patients haven't been having operations uh, that are needed. Uh, people with appendicitis have been too afraid to go into hospital. Uh, there are lots of conditions that aren't being dealt with uh, as a result. And so the death figures and the, the suffering is far more extensive even than uh, people who'd look at the coronavirus in isolation without realizing that there's lots and lots of collateral damage. So, uh, so that's the the uh, pessimism of the intellect uh, side, but optimism of the will is the sense that this is really a moral imperative uh, to my way of thinking, and therefore it's important to talk about it. Um, and that's the only chance. In other words, if we turn our will pessimistic along with our intellect, uh, then we really, um, that's game set and match. Uh, and it clearly won't happen if people aren't working for it. So it is, uh, and I think it is interesting in the United States that this was uh, discussed during uh, the debates um, and was really a big, and a lot of Americans would actually like to have uh, a more comprehensive, uh, indeed universal coverage. And the point is to how to make the political system respond to that and having uh, people who are energetic and, uh, and uh, articulate and informed uh, arguing for that seems to me a really important part. It's not the answer, but surely it's part of it. And so I applaud what you're doing and I, I hope that you'll keep doing it. And, uh, you know, it's more important than you do it, that, than that I should do it. So that's, uh, this is good.